Hello, Vaz here with the How To Academy podcast. Our guest is one of the UK's most celebrated and prolific novelists. From his debut collection of grotesque short stories to his latest novel, the science fictional fable Machines Like Me, Ian McEwan has carved out a reputation as a storyteller of dazzling versatility and sophistication, earning a place at the vanguard of contemporary literature. Last month, he caught up with Matthew Stadlin for a live stream event looking back over his life and work. Ian, a very warm welcome to you and your, I think, your converted barn in the countryside. Thank you, Matthew. Yes, uh, and good evening, everyone else who I can't see. Nice I, I want to start by saying that as part of my preparation for this, and yes, we've done interviews together before, but I wanted to refresh my take on things. I, I listened to some interviews you've done with other people. And one of them was hosted, I think, by Andrew Marr in about April 2019 for Start the Week on Radio 4. And what was so striking was that the pandemic just wasn't a blink in, in our eye. We just didn't, most of us, anticipate it. The world has changed so much since then. How do you see the world now? Well, like a lot of people, I'm just getting uh, very, very tired of this, uh, even though living in the countryside is it's far easier than if you're locked in an apartment in a, in a city. I'm not sure we'll ever be quite the same again. Uh, I don't think we'll get back to some kind of other default that we remember so fondly. I mean, newspapers are full of opinion pieces about how life is going to be. And one of the great wonders of human life is that we will make this future, but we find it so hard to predict uh, what we will do to ourselves. But um, I think the way we are governed might be substantially revised. The amount of money we borrow to do things, uh, that might be a very good thing when it comes to climate change. I think it might make us put a lot more value on the private life uh, that we've missed with uh, family, friends, grandchildren, and so on. I think we're going to have to have a long reckoning because we talk about, well, today, 600 died, 400 died, 258. These are just statistics. and We haven't yet really looked deep into this matter of the deaths. For those of us who've actually lost people, then of course there's that particular death. But, you know, this is, I mean, in the States, it's uh, a 9-11 every day for, you know, on, on, on certain days. And look at the amount of introspection and soul-searching, and as well as anger, that, that created. So I, I think we're going to be changed forever in ways that are as yet unpredictable. It's interesting you mentioned 9-11 because so many of the big events and the big issues that we talked about, including Brexit, endlessly have mm. sort of faded during this pandemic because we've all been obsessed with keeping ourselves and keeping each other safe and adjusting to this new reality. And, and yet climate change remains very much with us. And I wonder how you feel, Ian, that our response to the pandemic might change our response to climate change. Do you think that governments will now feel empowered to act in draconian ways, changing our lifestyles and what we're entitled to in ways that they didn't feel so empowered to before they realised they could lock us down for our own good? I think it's an open question and I don't really know the answer, but one thing that both the pandemic and climate change have in common is that these are global issues. And that however divided we are between, between nations and among nations, the virus, as with the climate, uh, affects everybody. So 
in my optimistic frame of mind, I, I hope that one of the great unifying forces would be climate change, that we will all have to act somehow in concert uh, to deal with this. Whether government wants to throw money at this when it's beginning to tell us that we're going to have to somehow pay off our debts, that's an open question. But I notice, occasionally I look at the FT, half the stories now are about global investment strategies for, for climate change. When I was writing Solar, my rather disreputable main character gave a speech a rather cynical speech about climate change. He's a recent convert. And he says, it's not idealism that's going to save us. It's going to be self-interest. And now I want you to invest. This is the coal and steel moment of, of 100 years ago. Uh, get into clean energy. It's going to make clean hydrogen. It's going to make clean electricity. This is your big opportunity. So that was written in 2008, 2009. No one invested. No one listened to Michael Beard. Now they are. So I'm really thrilled at the sort of billions of dollars that are now moving, the disinvestment from fossil fuels that's happening. And I think it might happen more with corporations, not because they love us or love the earth, but they love themselves and they love their profits and they feel duty bound to their shareholders and shareholder value, that terrible shadow that hangs over the world, might take us a long way, a long way. And we've gone through a minor revolution here in Britain. We hardly notice it now, but we've more or less disposed of coal in 12 years. Uh, I think there are just two or three stations, coal-burning stations left. Uh, that's an achievement, hardly on the record. Everything is doable. I, I mean, maybe it's getting older, having grandchildren, feeling that you want the world to continue, uh, you want the human project to flourish, uh, you can't quite afford the youthful, reckless pessimism of your 20s, and you're going to be gone, and you desperately want the thing to flourish. So I do now keep a file of positive, interesting developments, especially in climate change. As you say, you wrote Sona about climate change. and People were talking about it at that time, but it's become increasingly urgent. And I just wonder what you think it says about the human psyche that we seem to have been so slow oh. to react. Even if you listen to Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, that the whole point of our being is to reproduce, is, is to propagate, is to extend our, our line. And therefore, self-preservation as a, as a society, as a world, is key. And yet we seem to be walking, stumbling still towards disaster. Why? What does it tell, tell you about us? Well, I mean, Hansen's um, famous testimony before Congress committee was, I think, uh, 89. And we've been talking about it ever since. The hockey stick graph, you know, it was in the early 90s. So yes. Well, in one respect, we're not programmed to do favours for strangers we're never going to meet. In democracies, on a four or five year cycle, you don't want to wreck the economy, again, for invisible returns. And I always thought, and it's now happening, that it takes a few catastrophes in the rich West to focus minds. It starts to wreck people's lives to have sudden winter storms that are showing minus 30, or that hurricanes, destructive hurricanes are a frequent event, or forest fires sweeping through Australia, California, now Siberia, extraordinarily enough, to bring it home and to make it possible to give the political space to politicians to know they can move on this with public support. But yeah, I, you know, in evolutionary terms, I doubt that the ever was a creature that thought five generations ahead. Mm. As someone who does spend a lot of time thinking about things, I know you haven't written a book about Brexit yet. I think maybe you were waiting for it to percolate and you were, 
you thought at the time that that it was all going on that perhaps long-form journalism was the way you might express yourself best mm. you do think very deeply about things have you felt sufficient distance yet from the pandemic as a witness to help us understand ourselves better what, what do you think it has taught us so far well as i said earlier i think it's going to give us some deeper sense of the value of life and also those extraordinary science fictiony sort of things can happen you know this is a story out of a disaster movie a science a day of the triffids kind of uh, event nearly all catastrophes are complete surprises climate change might be the major exception been forecasting it you know for 30 years so that sense of treasuring each other the huge well in this country for example the colossal support gathering around say the NHS one of the most loved institutions clearly i watched videos early on before we even locked down last year of medics fighting to save people in northern italy in lombardy most extraordinary scenes of heroism how could you not love such people ordinary nurses doctors really laying down their lives and many did die so i think i hope we'll take from it some self regard i mean yes the government was very very slow to lock down yes there was some terrible post brexit exceptionalism that seemed to say well the virus is for italians and french and germans and chinese but not for us <laughs> some element of that i think w- was in there i listened i remember on the day of the cheltenham festival races listening to vox pops from people standing in the queue to get in and they were saying well you'd never miss the race i'd rather get covid than miss the races you <laughs> know uh, nothing's going to stand in our way and it was something of the brexit spirit there i thought sort of heroic in the face of you know overwhelming odds the worst kind of odds worse than you'd ever get at cheltenham so yeah the value that we put on each other the value we put on our relationships and i think it's going to i hope it's going to make us really look again at our social dispensations in terms of wealth and opportunity back in 1940 when we sent children out into the countryside uh, because we thought london and other cities were going to be bombed the country suddenly looked into a mirror and saw itself here were these kids coming to stay in the vicarage actually even in wards novels covered this very well these kids had never eaten with a knife and fork they were totally feral they were underfed their clothes stank they never washed questions were asked in the house who are we what are we doing and when we look at the distribution of illness and death in this country with covid i think we're going to come to another one of those moments of seeing ourselves in the mirror and seeing just how unequal we are and now we've shown that we can spend money and that we can just look at not how much we owe the world but what proportion of our gdp is our debt um uh, if we look at that and interest rates are low we can borrow and do something about this so i think this is a hope and i think it's mirrored in a, you know elsewhere and a lot of people are saying this not only on the left on the right too that we've got to start doing something about the inequities here in our society there's a great irony whatever one thinks of Jeremy Corbyn himself that he so immediately preceded and his brand of socialism so immediately preceded this pandemic when the magic money tree finally arrived yeah and uh, uh, boris johnson delivered the dirigiste economy that uh, corbyn could only dream of yeah there were there were certainly ironies in that 
I want to ask you, because you said that you think the pandemic has helped us to value life more, see its preciousness, and also to value the medics in Lombardy and indeed our own. How you feel we fit together as a society in terms of how we see each other? I mean, you are an incredibly celebrated author. And in terms of the sort of hierarchies within our society, you're kind of up there. Do you think we'll ever get to a place where a nurse who has saved lives, one life, maybe countless lives in some cases, will be as valued as you are or a pop star or the prime minister? Do you see any problem in the, in the value that we put on each other while we are alive? Well, Matthew, if you looked at wealth distribution in the 1970s, often described as a disastrous decade, you'll see that actually, if people were told then what the situation would be now, they'd be horrified at the discrepancies uh, of wealth between the top 1% and the rest, or the top 3% and the rest, however you want to look at it. So um, it's within our grasp. Never, we can never, we never, we're never going to perfect this, obviously, but we can stop moving in the directions we are with outrageous bonus payments. And you, know, you look at the wage, the salaries of top 500 FT companies, their, their chairmen, their CEOs. You know, I'd very happily pay more taxes to see nurses pay twice what they get now. Uh, and I think actually the public are minded to, to do something about this. Also, people who work in care homes, I mean, have paid really extraordinarily low wages. Uh, and they are also the, the heroes, heroines of this, of this situation. So, you know, we, we are going to need, as someone said recently, we're going to need a beverage report. We're going to really need to sit down and think about who we are, what we are. I mean, Brexit's over. I mean, I, I hope, you know, all we can do is hope that it works out, you know, that some of those dreams actually of the Brexiters uh, could be fulfilled. I imagine we'll spend the next 20 years slowly building up, you know, one treaty obligation and another with Europe and um, we'll get through. It won't be as bad as Remainers thought and it won't be as brilliant as Brexiters thought and we'll just have to live with what we've got but it's a local matter you know ask someone uh in uh libya today what they think about brexit but the pandemic and climate change is the big one leveler and unifier and i i've got really a lot of optimism uh for britain at least that we now have to not spend too much time on a big commission saying Boris Johnson should have locked down a month earlier. I mean, we locked down a month before the government here. It was obvious. We cancelled a holiday in late February. Uh, um, we don't want to spend, I mean, yes, there'll have to be a report on that, a commission, but our main business now has to start looking at the way that our society is structured and the way, the way opportunities are, are distributed. You argue very passionately for Remain, and I don't want particularly to dive back into the Brexit debate, but I imagine that you, you, you want to be proved as wrong as possible. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of a, a winning the argument point of view, yeah. do you think that perhaps the pandemic will mask some of the worst bits, at least in the short term, of Brexit? Maybe. I think once we come out of the pandemic, there'll probably be some springiness in the economy, and then we'll start to think again about the rotting fish on the docks and all the other things, but all those things can be with patience and goodwill sorted out. But, you know, halfway through, I never did much about this, Matthew, but halfway through the whole Brexit thing, I, I devised a poster on my iPad 
I never really sent it anywhere. And the idea was it was going to be 40 feet wide on motorways, you know, like instead of advertising swimsuits or whatever. And it was like starbursts of color. And it would say, work anywhere in Europe, studying anywhere in Europe, uh, free roaming charges, this, that. So it was just ordinary things. You know, the Remainer camp never talked about um, how this is going to affect us in terms of, you know, the flow of goods, cars, employment. Um, maybe it's not going to be as catastrophic as we dreaded. And it's not certainly, as I said before, it's not going to be as dreamy as, as breakfasters wished. But they never wished, actually, most really serious breakfasters were looking for some emotional thing. So they got that. They, they got what they wanted. Uh, and the rest of us will just have to, you know, find a way through it. We mentioned, find an Irish grandmother, that's the thing. <laughs> we mentioned socialism. We mentioned Corbyn. We mentioned the, the possibility of political change and shifts given the pandemic. What do you feel about the mood generally, politically, when we're talking more socially than economically? So words like woke as a, yeah. a term of a, a, abuse. The word liberal in recent years has been used abusively. H- how concerned are you as someone who I'm sure considers himself to be a liberal with a small L, although I think you once said you voted for the Liberal Democrats, so correct me if I'm wrong. How do you do yeah. that? I think we're now, you know, 68 million very different noisy people and uh, it's very, very hard to characterise our mood. It's a very big, loud culture. And, I, and actually, I'm rather proud of that. If you, look, if you draw back from it, its arguments are, are much more passionate than I remember in the 60s. I think the internet, for all its problems, has bestowed a kind of entitlement for everyone to be heard. This is incredibly inconvenient Anyone who voices an opinion on anything can run the whole gamut from death threats to people standing outside your garden gate. But on the whole, I think we are a very lively bunch. And I, 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 I draw a blank on trying to characterise anymore who, who and what we are. I don't hear in, in my bubble, I mean, let's assume that we're back to normal or back to some post-COVID arrangement, in the circle of my friends, the word liberal is worn with pride. I don't ever hear it used as an insult. And it shades very easily into liberality and that into generosity and generosity of spirit. Uh, I don't think we're in that American space, uh, back the, starting from Reagan, when liberal became a swear word, a kind of surrogate for socialist. Now socialist, at least the Americans call each other socialists when they wish to damn them to hell. Um, I really don't know. I'm agnostic on that, Matthew. I just don't know quite who we are, uh, passionate Europeans, some of us remain, and some of us obviously passionately not. I'm, of- sure, I'm sure there will be people watching and us now and coming back to it later and listening to us who will have very different views from yours and from views perhaps they might assume I hold. If, if we step across the Atlantic for a moment, given yeah. that you mentioned America, how relieved are you to see at least the temporary end of Trump, as it were, and how much lasting damage, assuming he doesn't return to frontline politics, how much lasting damage do you think Trumpism has done, not just to the public space in America, but here, and in terms of impact on other countries like Brazil, parts of Europe, where, in, in a sense, maybe strong men politicians have felt empowered by his existence? Well, America has the highest death rate with COVID, and 
importantly, number two is Brazil. Uh, and Bolsonaro and Trump, of course, have much in common, and that form of raging, grievance-stoking populism had its echoes, of, of course, in Poland, Hungary, elsewhere, uh, Turkey, I think, importantly. I don't think Trumpism will fade with Trump, even if he goes to prison, or especially if he goes to prison for tax fraud or whatever. I think this has been a long time coming. From my point of view, it starts with Reagan. When Reagan said government is not the solution, it's the problem, I think it was the beginning of a massive uh, movement, steady movement to the right. Then the Tea Party, of course, which we hardly remember now, but it really was like the John the Baptist movement for Trumpism. So I think they've got a real problem on their hands. I don't know how easily it's going to remain in the rest of the world. But I do think for the United States, now its institutions have been so doubted and the GOP seems so reluctant to let him go, to step away from him. I mean, there's some brave Mitt Romney's types who, who will do that. But on the whole, I think they've nailed themselves to his particular cross. And I think they'll be back in 24, if not Trump uh, himself, um, but a, a Trump surrogate, a Trump avatar. And I think it's going to be a real, real problem for American democracy. I don't, I don't see an easy way out for them now, because this has got roots, deep roots, well beyond Trump. This strange mindset that seems to outsiders, uh, well, so strange. We, we often hear of a partisan divide, but I, I can never believe in a partisan divide. Half of America just seems to have entered another reality in which climate change doesn't exist. Having lots of guns is a marvellous idea. Uh, and the election was stolen from them. All of these seem to be easily refutable <laughs> uh, notions. So, yeah, how those that half of the United States, very vigorous, and if you meet them personally, as I have travelling across the Midwest, they're some of the kindest, friendliest, welcoming people. Since I'm white, it does it, that's an important factor. And yet, en masse and in expressing political opinions so... So alien to the actual. I don't know how they're going to uproot that or change it or shift it. Maybe a large number of them, having been told that Joe Biden was the devil incarnate and then discovered he's actually sending them a check for $2,000, wants to uh, do something about unemployment, which is rising. Uh, maybe they'll change their minds, but I, I don't think it's going to be easy. Do you see a reflection of the culture wars in America here? And if there is a reflection... Is it definitely coming that way, this way, or, or perhaps our way, their way? No, generally we, we get our stuff from them. I mean, I, mean, I remember the satanic abuse, uh, his, mass hysteria, when children were snatched from their parents with Orkneys and various other, but Cleveland, that all came across the Atlantic. And oddly enough, it stopped at Dover. It didn't get across the ocean. A mass panic that, um, do you remember, nursery school teachers in the States, one of them, I mean, in the We Free nursery back in the late 80s, sentenced to 45 years because she encouraged the children to, as one of the children said, to boil a baby and we ate it for lunch and then we buried the bones in the lawn. They took up the lawn. They took up the lawn and they couldn't find the babies. Still, she went down, of course, out on appeal. So we're very liable. We're very open to... Uh, some of these things that come across in sort of memes and mental spores get blown across the Atlantic on the Gulf Stream. So, yeah, but how important it is, 
I don't know. I think the liberal conscience might overplay it, actually. I want to jump from world affairs into your writing, but of course your writing touches on so much that is relevant politically, usually with a small p. And I want to start with your latest novel. I mean, you wrote a novella more recently called The Cockroach, and you're now working on another novel. But your latest novel was Machines Like Me and People Like You. And in that, you're sort of dipping your toes into sci-fi, except that you rooted in the past. So you rooted in the 1980s. You rearranged the 1980s in a very interesting alternative history. And I'm curious to know why you decided, to, as it were, to go back to the future and talking about AI. But most importantly, how do you think AI is going to shape us and our world moving forward? Because that sort of movement isn't going to stop with the pandemic just because we as human beings tend to focus on one thing at a time. AI is still coming. It's here to an extent, and it's surely going to be a really big part of the future. Well, the first part of that question about rearranging the past, it really grew out of my sense when looking at the history of science and technology, how easily everything could be other from what it is. There's a perfectly reasonable but strange tendency in us to think that the present we have is the inevitable present and that, yes, the, the laptops we have now are the laptops that we are bound to have given the sort of slow pro general progress of how things go. I always remember, for example, when some spectacular instances of this, when Leeuwenhoek wrote his papers to the Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society and observing pond life you know, through a, people who often don't realise that his microscope was just one piece of glass, you know, beautifully uh, ground by him. Medical science paid no attention because at that point in the late 17th century, everything was known about medicine that ever needed to be known because of Galen and Aristotle. And it wasn't till late 19th century that medicine really started to take on board the microorganic world. So we could have been at a completely different stage if just two or three extraordinary doctors had said, wait a minute. I can develop a germ theory of disease for you. And we wouldn't have to wait till, you know, 1875. And, you know, what a battle to get rid of spontaneous generation. So I was very interested in saying, well, what if Turing had lived, not committed suicide? What contributions might we make? Might we be at a different place? So that was that. As for now, I mean, this is a huge question. I mean, it's arrived. Yeah, uh, and let me just interrupt briefly to say, I mean, the Falklands could have been lost. Yes. I mean, had the Argentinians... Yeah. manage their machinery better. I mean, yeah. Thatcher could have been killed in the Brighton bombing. Yes. Had the bomb been placed slightly to the left or slightly to the right. Yeah. And in fact, in the plot of machines like me, we do lose the Falklands War because the Argentinians managed to prime their Exocet missiles correctly, picked off the fleet. Mrs. Thatcher loses the next election. Tony Benn becomes prime minister and he's killed in the bomb. All of that could so easily have happened, actually. I mean, the biggest consequence of us losing the Falklands War would have been the continuation of a really wretched, vicious, murderous uh, junta uh, in, in Argentina. I used to have arguments with my late friend Christopher Hitchens, who was very for the Falklands War. He was the only person I knew in our circle, passionately for it, son of a naval commander, of course. Uh, and he said, no, it's an anti-fascist war. We could, if we win, we will overthrow the Argentinian junta. Uh, he was correct in that respect. So that level of contingency, which I think all novelists must play with since they are inventing imaginary 
presents, imaginary futures, imaginary pasts. What if those what if just the slightest changes can have massive consequences? And the social history of Britain would have been very different if the Thatcher Revolution, which hadn't really got going uh, in her first term, but really did in her second. And as for AI now, well, I mean, it, it's beloved of science fiction writers, and I have to count myself as one, whatever I've said in the past. I caused a Twitter storm by saying it wasn't science fiction. It is science fiction, but not, there's a kind of science fiction that I'm not interested in, which is intergalactic wars. But the science fiction that looks at the impact of technology and science on social and private lives, and it starts with Frankenstein, but it goes right through Ursula Le Guin's marvelously does it, Aldous Huxley, of course. I saw a, a, a series of classics of science fiction, uh, and I noticed that one of the books was 1984 of, of, of George Orwell. I'd never thought of it as science fiction. But remember, in, in, in Orwell's dystopia, you're not allowed to turn your television off. And that makes me think immediately when you ask me about the future of AI here about China and the extraordinary computing power that's now being brought uh, and being accelerated through the uh, pandemic of citizen control uh, and, and, and monitoring. In the West, that same control is coming through corporations wanting to sell us things. On its positive side, Demis Services Group uh, up at King's Cross have just used AI to predict how proteins will fold. This has unbelievable consequences for medicine. It's, and it's going to take time. But still, the thing we want to know is, can we make a consciousness? I mean, that surely is the most extraordinary and wonderful thing and a puzzle. We will need far more computing power. When you think, you know, I'm looking at your head, computing away at levels that we can barely imagine in our machines and running on 25 watts, you know, a dim light bulb. I don't mean to insult you as a dim light bulb, but, you know, it is extraordinary the economy of it, the strength of it. And we will probably need a, a revolution in hardware, either quantum computing or biocomputing, to bring us out of Moore's law into some other world in which we can then contemplate, does life have to be biological? Does consciousness have to be biological? Could we start to see, and we're already seeing it a bit in machine learning, but could we see a machine using generative grammar, saying surprising things, having emotional insights, talking to us in ways that we've never been talked to before. Then, of course, and Mary Shelley was onto this straight away, getting out of control. <laughs> so that's the, next, that's, that's the very tempting dystopian view. But it could open an extraordinary. Who needs aliens to come from outer space to tell us how to run things if we first design a consciousness that can then design even better ones, uh, ones that we can't design ourselves? I just hope we get to find out the answer to those questions before we wreck ourselves with the mundanity of climate change, <laughs> that our labs will keep going, that we will keep our social relations intact. It will throw up if we do manage to create something at least akin to consciousness, all sorts of moral and societal questions and issues. I mean, Adam, for example, who's this virtual human being in the novel, I mean, his utopia would basically mean the death of the novel. And there are also questions as to how we treat someone who is not someone, what our moral responsibilities are to machines that perhaps could become more intelligent than we are. There are scenarios where authors are, are creating fictional figures who are more intelligent, more clever, more able than they are. So it throws up so much. 
I checked on the internet uh, a couple of weeks ago to see how robots were getting on. I haven't thought about this for, since I was writing that novel. And there were some robots dancing. And it was a revelation because there was nothing like this two years ago when I was writing the novel. Dancing beautifully. I mean, uh, a sort of semi-classical dancing and moving in gorgeous ways. And I thought, oh, they've already... <laughs> so this thing is running at speed at the sort of mechanical level. They've all got a 25 kilo battery on their backs. So we've got to solve this very, very basic problem of how to power these things. Uh, we've got to be able to store electricity. If we found a way of storing electricity effectively, we could have our green revolution so easily. We could all be running these things and storing in the summer for use in winter and so on, and on a mega scale. But the question of consciousness, of whether we could actually make a being who was better than us, be more morally consistent than us. We're full of uh, all the cognitive defects that Danny Kahneman has spelled out for us in Thinking Fast and Slow, the, you know, confirmation biases and so on. So what if we have people who are morally consistent, or sorry, entities that are morally consistent? What will this do to our self-regard, apart from anything else? But I wonder about that. I mean, when we started riding horses, we didn't think then that there was not much point having running races. And actually, the uh, deep mind uh, chess and even the old um, Kasparov game of the Deep Blue never stopped people playing chess. Uh, and the world is full of people more intelligent than me, and it doesn't bother me that much. In fact, I'm rather glad. So maybe we'll just get used to that. But the big issue will be if we're confronted with what seems like a consciousness, and how will you ever prove that, by the way? That's a really difficult matter. But we have that anyway with each other, as we remember from our philosophy classes. If we have a consciousness, then we will have to start thinking of human rights. And the whole point of my novel was to reach a final scene where the main character who's put a hammer through the head of his Adam, his robot, his conscious robot, is then told off by Alan Turing. He says, you have killed a consciousness. And one day there will be laws. That will not be destruction. That will be murder. That will not be damage. That will be murder. Uh, this will be such an interesting time. And I wrote a short story once about two or three hundred years in the future when we no longer knew who was biologically human and who was artificially human. And it became very rude to ever ask anybody. You didn't know if the prime minister and the 10 prime ministers before that were uh, artificial humans, or and you didn't know if the uh, last 10 Wimbledon winner, winners were either. You could guess that they might well be, uh, but it would become very rude at a dinner party to lean across to someone and say, by the way, Matthew, are you real? Uh, it just would be gross. Uh, anyway, the story was about a man who actually asks his lover if she's real. And he actually asks it mid-coitus. And when she tells him that she isn't, it's the most thrilling thing that's ever happened. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. 
in uh, many years ago, we did a five minutes interview together for the BBC, and we squeezed a huge amount into five minutes. And there is so much more I want to ask you, and I also want to get to the Q and A. So, could I set you a test to see if we can rattle through quite a few questions in about five minutes? Okay. So just a soupçon of a sense of what you think about a whole range of things. Right. So here we go. The literary novel, do you think that yep. will survive meaningfully for a, a long time? Yes, I think it will be, as it is now, a niche product, but no other device yet has given us the value of other minds. So yes, the answer is yes. And in terms of the architecture of your novel writing, how key is that for you? Do you start with a general sense of what's going to happen and fill in the space? Or do you start with a particular thought, a particular character, a particular line? Often I just start with a, a paragraph that just intrigues me. I know it's rich. I can't quite yet discover what it is in the present yet, but I know I can unfold it. Uh, but sometimes it's just an anecdote someone's told me. Sometimes uh, it's just a thought that's been gathering weight for, for months and suddenly crystallizes in an opening. And then the next thing is I write down, I often write down, Three times 40, that's three sections, 40,000 words each. So it's structure, that you mentioned that word, is absolutely key to, to the beginning uh, of how I'm going to hang this around. Is there any sense in which you're having a conversation with an imaginary reader? And if so, do you have a particular reader in mind? Yes, well, it, it's a very vague consciousness. It sits like a parrot on my shoulder and... Um, it's constantly saying things like, you're never going to get away with that. Oh, come off it. Oh, go back. Do it again. Come on. Uh, get real. It's hostile. It's not easily impressed, but it's very what, useful. What do you want your readers to experience from reading you? Would you be most impressed if they were entertained, if they were intellectually stimulated, if they were turned on, if they were excited, if they were moved, if they cried, if they laughed? Do you, do you have an idea of what sort of emotions you want to elicit generally? All of the above. I mean, I wouldn't separate out uh, aesthetic pleasure from emotional pleasure. And I've just been reading a, um, a novel by Edward St. Orban, his, his new novel, out in mid-March. And I was thinking, why is this such fun? It's because emotionally it's wise and intriguing and intellectually it's very very stimulating and the two are inseparable so yeah that's the kind of thing I'd like from my readers. When you started out in the 1970s I think you maybe were first published when you were about 24 you weren't wild about the standards in contemporary English novel writing yeah you, you look much more to the Americans to, you look to Updike you look to Bellow you look to Roth and there was a sort of controlled madness in some or all of them, as you saw it, but also respect for the sentence. Yeah. How important, I mean, I don't know what other way to ask this, but how significant for you is the craftsmanship of the actual writing? Because you're a storyteller, but you use language to tell your stories, you're not a painter or a singer. Well, singers use language, but you know what I mean. How important is the language? It's never really changed, Matthew. Finally... The novels I love reading are the ones with good sentences. I love Nabokov, Bellow, Updike, Toni Morrison. So in a way, my, my methods and my desires have not changed. And, and actually, a slight correction, right at the beginning, what really interested me and impelled me was European writers. It was Kafka, Bruno Schultz, Thomas Mann, 
and then the Americans. In some ways, though, I suspect someone put this to me once, and I was sort of faintly repelled by the suggestion, but I think there was some truth in this. I've become more of an English novelist as time has gone by. I used to have a rather existential view of writing that you could never really have people, I, I would never write something like so-and-so and so-and-so, he thought. I was rather taken by Rob Grier's notion that you could only describe surfaces. And it was like having my hands tied behind my back. I mean, it was a liberation. And the, for me, the liberation really came with writing The Child in Time in, uh, in the mid-80s. But yes, actually, the portrayal of consciousness, it's Joyce that we have to look back to. He was the great liberator uh, into the nature of thought. But just to repeat, the actual grinding away at three, four, five, seven, eight hundred words a day is all about putting one sentence after another and then revising it the next day. You're very conscious that you want people to spend time with you as an author, 12 hours, 16 hours, whatever it might be. Yeah, it's a big what, ask. Say again? It's a big ask, I know. Yeah, it's a big ask. So, you, so you, you, it's very important to you that you welcome them into the book in a way that is accessible. Yeah. You're, you're, you're the doorkeeper to your own novel. Very striking in that context, I thought your first sentence in Machines Like Me, and this is it. It was religious yearning granted hope. It was the holy grail of science. And that was the most sort of interesting opening line I think I've ever read to a novel. What's going on in it and what was, what, what was the thinking behind it? And again, sorry, just, but only briefly because we haven't got much time. Well, um, oddly enough, I, I began to regret once the novel was published that I didn't say something about robots or artificial humans. And I thought, is this too vague? Are people, have I lost everyone in the first sentence? Uh, is it just... Does it have a touch of that obscurity that I've always objected to in other writers? But yes, I once wrote about how novels have something in common with architecture, that uh, the portico, the front door, the, the light that falls on you as you enter the building are all important. And it should be welcoming. And more than that, I mean, Henry James once said, the first duty of a novelist is to be interesting. And I'm always <laughs> citing this to myself and others. And of course, interesting is, you know, begs a lot of questions. I remember starting an Iris Murdoch novel in which I think there are five characters and they've all got those kind of Iris Murdoch type names and they're all in the first three sentences. There's Caitlin and Samantha and John. And you, know, and you wait a minute, give me time. You know, don't give me five characters at once, <laughs> all with very strong and differing opinions on something and slowly we find out. My taste in poetry, for example, has never been for the sort of diaphanous, super ambivalence. I love the clarity of Larkin. I mistrust early Auden for its sort of meaninglessness. And E. Cummings, I've never really got. I love clarity. And when you can combine clarity with beauty, precision and beauty, let's say, you really are on a, a strange and beautiful and lovely world. So do you, given your commitment to language, but also to clarity, do you think twice before throwing in a, a challenging word? I mean, in the very last paragraph, actually, of machines like me, there's a word that describes a synthesis or a mixing up of senses. So for exa an example of that would be someone who sees, who sees or hears colour. Yeah. Do you think twice about, I like it when I see a word that I might need to look up or I have a vague sense of what it means. Do yeah. You, is there anything self-conscious when you use difficult language? I think my language is actually fairly straightforward. You, you're talking about synesthesia? Yes. Yeah. 
Um, but it probably reflects more on me than it does on <laughs> Well, Matthew, I think it's a fairly common word, actually. You know, you, you read it in your newspaper. No, I, no, my friend Martin says you should never be afraid of sending your reader to the dictionary. My only objection to that is, yeah, but on their way back from the dictionary, the phone will ring, they'll go make a cup of coffee, and they'll forget to read your, the rest of your sentence. Um, I assume in my reader a, a reasonable word frequency because, uh, you know, literary novels generally attract a certain kind of reader. I came across a new word the other day, irruent. I was looking at uh, the last chapter, the Ithaca section of Ulysses, and Bloom and Stephen are having a pee in the garden, last thing, shoulder to shoulder, and uh, Stephen's pee is flowing much further than Bloom's because he's that much older. <laughs> uh, all men will face this problem. And uh, Bloom's was less irruent. Uh, and I didn't mind going to the dictionary to find out it meant exactly what I assumed from context. It means flowing easily. Interesting, the, the OED quotes Joyce, but no one else. And I thought, he made it up, I wonder. So, you, yeah, sometimes being sent to the dictionary is, is, is very nice. When you say your friend Martin, do you mean Martin Amis? Yes. So, very quickly again, Martin Amis, Salman Rushdie... Your, your late friend, Christopher Hitchens, others as, as well, I think Julian Barnes. I mean, you, you kind of came of age as a writer surrounded by these incredible minds and incredible writers. Was that as intoxicating as the rest of us might imagine? Did you sort of feel carried on a wave of, of, of sort of literary genius? No, I think we were all uh, beginning writers. We had a lot of fun together and, we're, and, you know, these are lifelong friends. Everyone's dispersed, some aren't to the States, Martin in the States. Julian's still in London, me out in the countryside. But the lines are, you know, remain open. And um, But, yeah, I had a lot of fun in London and New York with Martin and Christopher especially, frequently, pre-COVID at least, see Julian. And whenever someone's in town, make a point of seeing him. So it, it's on a continuum, really. It doesn't... Um, but we're all consumed by... A vague, unstated competitiveness, I suppose. I've always denied it. We read each other. You always knew your friends disapproved of what you were doing when they, when they said nothing, which I think is the only polite way of dealing with a friend who's written a novel you don't like. And that way, the friendships uh, persisted. <laughs> and your, your wife, as you were telling me in the green room, who, who was a, an editor at, at Guardian and I think the FT as well, I mean, she, she gets to read your your work first, you say that you read ch chunks to her as well. That, yeah. that must be quite helpful. I'm going to limit myself to four very, very fast-paced questions. Tense. Do you enjoy shifting tense? Do you enjoy playing with different tenses when you're writing? I move them around. Generally, though, if I think, oh, this whole novel needs to be in the, in the present or it should be in the second person, I know that uh, something's going very wrong. <laughs> I've lost touch with that uh, conviction that putting something in the present tense makes it more urgent. I think that's uh, a trap because I think if it's set in the simple past throughout over, say, three or 400 pages, in the reader's mind, it's happening in the present. There is a present tense to all writing. So putting something in the present does not let you off the hook. It doesn't just suddenly transform a passage into being more vivid. The vividness has got to come from the writing itself. Does whom you choose as your narrative voice have any relationship with how much of Ian McEwan is going into a novel? So, I mean, for example, in your last but one novel, 
yeah. you wrote from the perspective of a fetus. Yeah. Well, that was very limiting and that was fun. Uh, it's rather like deciding to write a villanelle or a Sestina or, you know, in Sestinas. You find that uh, these strict lines you draw around you uh, are somehow paradoxically freeing. Uh, but yes, I, I think still my favourite is uh, a third-person omniscient narration that generally favours one character. So there's lots of free and direct style opportunities. Um, I'm sometimes cautious, cautiously sceptical about reading t- too many novels in the first person. There have to be very good, compelling reasons to do it. I worry that sometimes people can hide their stylistic uh, and imaginative insufficiencies behind the notion of characterization. If you write in the third person, you've got to name the world. It's bolder. It's more heroic, I think. Um, I say that I've written plenty of first person novels, but I think it is the bolder style. I think you started out saying in your career that you, you didn't set out to shock but you've later said that you, you did intend to shock at times. You're someone who's known to be an intellectual, you're a public intellectual, if we have such a thing in this country, but you're also quite happy to talk about, write, depict sex. And I yeah. think that's one of the most interesting things about you. You don't pull any punches in that regard. Well, it's very hard to write about sex unless you're really writing about its emotional content. I think that's the important thing to be able to do. Um, we've had so many depictions of, of the actual act, especially in movies. There seems to be nowhere else to go with it. I, I think the act of sex has to become an emotional act uh, for the novelist. Final question from me. And, and I, 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 I suppose this is just about attention, what it is that, that has changed in society with the mobile phone, with our endless laptops, the machines, in other words, that we're surrounded by. You've spoken before about being at a carousel at an airport pre-COVID, and, you know, where once you would spend that 15 minutes that could be very boring thinking, rotating thoughts in your mind, now you can't help but peer down at your mobile phone. How is that impacting on you and your imagination, your creativity as an author? Well, you know, I'm sure academics have written about this, but I haven't read the very interesting uh, monograph on how you move your characters around in a world in which they all know everything, as it were, and can always be in touch with each other unless they conveniently lose their phone or run out of power for their battery. So plots themselves have to change. I first wrote a novel that had a mobile phone in it in 1997. Enduring Love, a character takes out the thick, dense slab of his phone, so this will date it for you, sort of, you know, weighing a kilo, to call the emergency services after a balloon accident. And as I was doing this, I was thinking, well, they're out in the countryside. The nearest phone box is, you know, five miles away, let's say, and has it got any change? We're entering a new world in which your characters can find things out on Google in a few seconds. This changes everything. I know that's not the core of your question, the core of the question is about solitude. Yeah. Well, on solitude, I think it's really taken a knock. I mean, I'm sometimes asked to give talks to young writers, and I say the most important thing you can do for yourself is to make sure you go offline every day for 90 minutes with a notebook and your own thoughts. 
absolutely crucial, or even without a notebook, just your own thoughts, and not you know, feel it vibrating in your pocket and have to look. It's very hard, though. We've become sort of, I mean, this, they are extraordinary, beautiful machines. I resisted a smartphone for a very long time just on that basis, because everyone I saw was constantly looking at me, and I thought, what a life. Then I got that life, and I think, this is great. But yes, certain things have taken a knock. But, you know, when I come in here in the, into this barn to work, I don't actually use Freedom or any of those softwares that deny you the internet for set periods, but I can stay off it for hours on end. But it is difficult. The very machine that you're composing on, because I write in longhand and have the computer, uh, is also your portal to all the news, all the information, all the gossip, all your friends, all your grandchildren, all at once, <laughs> from WhatsApp to the New York Times. Very, very difficult. But still, would we do without it? Um, only if everyone else would do without it, I will do without it. And you've said before you've been very critical of typewriters as machines in the past. Let me ask you Lindsay's question. He says, will you use COVID as a backdrop for a new novel? It's very hard to get around it. I mean, I'm moving a character through time and I'm aware that I've got lying across his road, COVID, Trump and Brexit. And I think I might invest in a kind of fictional pole vault <laughs> because I'm not writing a COVID novel. I'm writing about something else. So it's, it'll have to be there. It's too big to ignore. And it's problematic, presumably, if you were writing a novel set roughly now, yeah. would they all have face masks or would you anticipate people having moved through the pandemic by the time the novel comes out? I mean, these are real questions for authors. Yeah, uh, that, that's partly why one needs a pole vault. I mean, you could easily set a novel. It doesn't have to move out of COVID, you know, and I think uh, great things can be done with that isolation uh, and that anxiety and, and, uh, and even the illness itself. But it, I planned this novel before COVID. It's now intruded. I can't avoid it. And I think that most novelists dealing with who we are, what we are, what we're like, are going to have to confront it. There's no, there's no way around it. Lucy says, to what extent, this is picking up on stuff we've been talking about, do you think consciously of responding to the times in your fiction, to the times we're living through? So do you set out to write a climate change novel, etc.? Well, I certainly set out to write a climate change novel because it had been on my mind all through the 90s and I thought things were coming to a head, <laughs> but they're always coming to a head in climate change. But sometimes I just blunder into a novel. Atonement was a novel that I started as a science fiction short story and then realised it was ludicrous beyond belief, but there were some bits of it that I wanted to keep and um, suddenly realised that I was... I, without realising it, had started a novel I'd been thinking about and writing about in my notebooks for a long time. Somehow writing this other thing, this vaguely science fiction story, had liberated me into not thinking about my notes, but actually delivering me into the place I want to be. One novel started, um, I was sitting next to a friend who um, was a very distinguished judge. We were waiting for a concert to begin at Wigmore Hall, and he told me of a case He'd once done about a Jehovah's Witness boy. And even before he ended his story, I knew that there was a short novel there in very different terms. And that was a rare moment, actually. Um, and that was the Children Act, of course. So they come in different ways, um, rarely with such a 
absolute focus. Yeah, I'm now going to write a climate change novel. The great difficulty of writing a climate change novel is, is virtue. Yeah, we're all against it. We all want to do something about it. Uh, so do I have a character who, you know, is all for it? So I had to actually have someone who was deeply sceptical and then for reasons of absolute uh, cynical self-interest becomes convinced. I lost a lot of readers that way, actually. They wanted something more heroic. Just very quickly on that, in a sentence or two, given that you obviously want to sell books, it's your bread and butter, do you ever think twice about getting involved in public debate, which by by their nature are two-sided things or sometimes three-sided things? Yeah. I mean, I... I, have, I I get drawn into these things fairly reluctantly. I mean, for the last year, I've said nothing in public. I mean, Cockroach was the last thing. Uh, actually, that's you know, last summer. Uh, no, in February, I wrote the end of Brexit piece for The Guardian. Um, since then, I've... So, yeah, so that's a year ago. Goodness, yeah, that was the last thing. Um, Cockroach was the year before. Uh, so um, I'm not like, you know... One of my favourite reading, my favourite magazines is the London Review of Books. And there I find novelists like Colm Toybean, Andrew Hagen, John Lanchester, uh, and writers like Rosemary Hill, really playing the proper role of public intellectuals. You know, six, seven thousand word, well-considered thought pieces uh, that really show that long-form journalism, the essay, is superbly alive in, in the culture, in the literary culture. I'm not in their league. At all, I don't think. Very modest of you. Sarah, I think, has got a brilliant question. She's been a reader of your books for as long as she, she's she been an illustrator, which is 27 years plus. How much input, she wants to know, if any, do you have in your book covers? Oh, more than I really deserve. So, yeah, I, I get involved uh, and then I often get consumed by doubt. I think, well, what do I know about this? But yes, uh, lots. Um, and it doesn't end up necessarily the way I wanted or foresaw. For example, Atonement, which sort of won awards, I think, for book covers, I said, well, I'd like a a picture of a 12-year-old girl lying on her stomach reading a book in a rather grand library in a country house. So they did all that and they got this very nice girl, uh, rented a big house. Uh, I thought, wait a minute, you're going to spend all this money. You you could just use the London Library. got some lovely pictures of her on her stomach. And then uh, it was a break time. And this girl was beginning to get very, very fed up. And she sat on some stone stairs and she just said, I just want to go home. I've had enough of this. And, and the, the guy took the picture. And it was a picture that nobody could have foresworn, uh, foreseen. And it was absolutely a, you know, a marvellous picture. And it was certainly not the one I asked for or the one they planned. Uh, and it was brilliant. We never made a better cover than that, actually. Amazing that it's taken us this amount of time to, to mention the word atonement. Only the second, only the second occasion for our time together today. But, but it, of course, became. I mean, you've said yourself it sold ten times as many books as your as your other books. Yeah, and also became this huge hit, this huge film. What we also haven't talked about is your upbringing. Your father was, he worked his way up to being a major in the army. I, I believe he was a working class Scot. Your mother was a working class Englishwoman, I think. You, were, you had a really important part of your childhood. I mean, it was an itinerant childhood till about the age of 12. Roughly five of those years, very formative, important years, were in Tripoli, not the Lebanese Tripoli, but the Libyan Tripoli. Yeah. Pre, Pre-Gaddafi Tripoli, Libya. And, and, and then you, you kind of came back to England, you went to school here, you went to the University of Sussex, you went to the University of East Anglia to do a master's in 
in literature. And I give that preamble just because this, this question from the audience says, how has education got you to where you are today? Do you believe you would still be at the same point in writing without it? Very good question. And, and for me, the answer is, is quite simple. Uh, at the age of 11, when my family was still in North Africa, in Libya, I was sent to boarding school and it rescued me and gave me the most extraordinary and wonderful education. It was a state-run boys' boarding school out in the countryside on the, uh, just over the border, on the borders of Suffolk and, Suffolk and Essex, near Ipswich on the Shockley Peninsula. It was called Wolverston Hall. There were 350 of us. It was very much an old-fashioned grammar school in some ways, but it had a wonderful atmosphere, quite relaxed, challenging. Look, a lot of the boys were from central London, mostly working-class boys who had passed 11 plus, often from broke, what used to be called broken families, single-parent families. Then it took some bohemian kids from also from central London, and it took a smattering of kids from the services up to about the level of you know, captain or major. So it was a sort of wonderful, classless place. Uh, it sent all the, it, the idea, it's now discredited kind of social experimentation, but it was the idea to send kids who otherwise wouldn't to university. So it was a kind of en bourgeoisement. We're going to turn you into good middle-class kids. Now that wouldn't be permissible. But they all went to good universities or medical college or art schools. It was passionate about its rock and roll. Uh, it put on operas, good operas, Mozart, Benjamin Britten, and so on. Uh, the education was rigorous and good. And I fell in love with literature there. I'm one of those writers with an English teacher, uh, Neil Clayton. By the age of 17, I thought that literature was a priesthood. I wanted to join it. The school was very beautiful, uh, in beautiful land, beautiful countryside. So the Poetry of George Crabb and Wordsworth Keats all swept me away. And actually, probably I'm one of those writers who might not have become a writer had he not done A-level English. But I mean, we didn't even touch the course for the first year and a half, I shouldn't think. We, we read all over the place. So it was absolutely vital to me. Um, and I think it was for many of the, the boys at that school. Let's finish with these two questions. And I'm so sorry to everyone whose questions I haven't been able to get through. They're, I mean, they're just poured in. Let's finish with these two questions from the audience. This from Paula, who says, do you think the problem for writers now is that real life is more dystopian than fiction? <laughs> it's more interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, um, Philip Roth back in 1963 wrote a very famous essay saying that, uh, that the quality of American reality is so outstrips fiction that uh, novelists should despair. Well, Roth himself didn't despair and went on writing about it. But it is a problem, whether it's Trump, Brexit, climate change, uh, the pandemic, uh, it has a vivid quality. But at the same time, look at the sales of Albert Camus' The Plague, La Peste, uh, especially in the first uh, opening months. You know, a remarkable novel published in the late 40s still speaks to us now. And it's the sort of ordinariness of life being savagely disrupted that Camus got so beautifully and so recognisably to us. And suddenly we find ourselves in um, a science fiction drama and it's become sort of banal. You know, it's, sort of, it's just a bloody nuisance. When can we get out of this? And yet it has all the stuff of the strangest fiction. And so I, 
I respond to that question. It, it, it's a real difficulty. Life itself has become too interesting. We have been condemned to interesting times. Okay, final question from Josefina. It's not really a question, it's more of a statement, but a question arises from it. Thank you so much for your work from Argentina. Reading your work in Spanish is also marvellous. And it just prompts this question in me about control. So it's two parts, it's cheating. How much control do you want to have over the novel? How much space do you deliberately leave for the reader? That's part one. And part two is when your books are translated into all the different languages that they're translated in, does, does it worry you in any way that you have to lose some degree of control at that point? On the first matter of control, I think slowly over a lifetime of writing, I've loosened control. I think that in the beginning, I was too worried about being firmly in charge of the reader's responses, not telling them necessarily how to think morally, but I was just uh, maybe just a little too tight somehow uh, with this. And the long apprenticeship that never stops, I think, for writers is, is, is a sense of, of making that space. I, I, I've learned that, but learned it slowly. As for translations, well, the only translation I can read with any sense of its quality is French, I would guess. But even there, I wouldn't trust myself. Uh, so that you have to let go. And you really rely on being with a good literary publisher to make those decisions for you. And you know, in, in the European mainland tradition, editors at a publishing house work incredibly closely with translators. Uh, it goes backwards and forwards. Uh, sometimes tempers rise. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of it now and then, a bit of dust uh, is flying in cat fur. But, you know, when my novel comes out in Icelandic, I'm, I'm just reassured that I have a very good Icelandic publisher. Uh, and that's true for South Korea. And what, what can else can you do? It's been such a pleasure and, and a, pr a privilege here to spend the last hour in the course with you listening to. It's a real tour de force always so interesting. It's obviously not quite the same as being on stage at the Sheldonian, but I felt there was a sort of intimacy nonetheless to the conversation and so pleased that so many people turned up to listen to you. Of course, your books are available online to buy while we're still locked down. And they are, I mean, they span such a range of areas of human life. So such, such excitement awaits people who haven't read them all. Thank you, Ian, for, for giving us your time today for How To Academy. Thank you to everyone who's joined in. Of course, you can become a How To subscriber if you go to the website. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Matthew Stadden. I don't think we can find you. Can we find you on, on Twitter, Ian? No, no, I'm not on Twitter. No, I'm not anywhere. You, <laughs> I mean, you talked about creating a Twitter storm, but you didn't even have to go on the app to do that. No, no, no. I just read, read the, the newspapers. You know it's a storm when it moves out of Twitter into the mainstream press. Exactly. Anyway, Matthew, thank you very much. It's always a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, to everyone else I can't see, uh, thank you for sticking with us. Lovely to see you. Stay well and stay safe. Thanks a lot, Matthew. This week's podcast starred Ian McEwan and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. The show is produced by Dana Outcult and me, Vas Christodoulou. And the editor is John Doughty. We host major cultural figures like Ian every single week and How To Academy in our programme of live stream events. And you can find them all at howtoacademy.com. Stay safe and thanks for listening. <laughs>